Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. My name is Mutaki Ismail. We are currently discussing the fall of the Ottoman Empire and the creation of the modern Middle East. Before we get into it, let's go ahead and recap the last episode. The Allies were preparing for an invasion of the Dardanelles Strait, and they had pretty high hopes for success at first. They had successfully bombarded the Gallipoli Peninsula for several months, and the Ottomans were not able to respond to this bombardment, and so this was taken as evidence of the Ottomans' weakness. However, the initial Allied naval advance, which included both British and French ships, this, their initial advance was defeated. This was because the British minesweepers did not take out all of the underwater mines, which kept the Allied battleships from taking out the ground defenses that lined the two sides of the Dardanelles Straits. However, when the minesweepers tried to take out the mines, the ground defenses, the Ottoman ground defenses, their artillery shelled them, and without the mines being taken out, the battleships couldn't come through and take out the Ottoman defenses. So finally, the British and French, they decide to land their ground forces and to, to use their ground forces to take out the Ottoman defenses, which would, of course, allow the minesweepers to come through the Dardanelles Strait and take out the mines. When the mines are taken care of, then the, uh, theoretically, the battleships could then go through and attack the straits and attack the, uh, the capital of Istanbul. And this would quickly lead to the downfall of the Ottomans. And then the, uh, the Allies would be able to open up another flank against the Germans and hopefully force the Germans to surrender. The Ottomans, for their part, they also, uh, at least the Ottoman leadership, they also thought that the end was near. They had turned over their defenses to the Germans. Uh, Ottoman soldiers were still doing all the heavy work, but the Germans were doing all the planning. In particular, a German general named Lyman von Sanders, he reorganized the Ottoman defenses and the Ottoman soldiers who were pretty good fighters when they weren't under incompetent leaders. Unfortunately, um, some of the young Turks were fairly incompetent. The uh, Ottoman soldiers were reorganized and they were able to put up a pretty good defense against the British and French invaders which we're going to go into right about now. We did briefly discuss the landing at Gallipoli in the previous episode on this uh, in this series. Uh, we're going to go into a little bit more detail right now. So the Allied troops, they began landing on the Gallipoli Peninsula on April 25th, 1915. And there were five different landing points, and the British met very little resistance at three of these five landings. However, two of these landings were heavily contested. The first was at a location named Aribernu, which led to heavy casualties on both sides. The British troops landing at Aribernu were mostly uh, from the ANZAC, and ANZAC, A-N-Z-A-C, stands for Australian New Zealand Army Corps, 
These are mostly soldiers from basically Australia and New Zealand. They landed about a mile north of where they were supposed to land. So they were really cut off from the other um, from the other Allied Marine forces. And leading the Ottomans was an up-and-coming colonel named Kamal Ataturk. He led the Ottoman defenses, and he commanded a hill which was keeping the Anzac troops from, from advancing. The Anzac troops tried to advance, and uh, Kamal Ataturk's troops, they, the Ottoman troops, they fought him right back. They kept fighting. The fighting was very severe and very difficult. Uh, eventually, the Ottoman troops actually ran out of ammunition. We mentioned before how supplies were running very low for many parts of the Ottoman fighters. But Kamal Ataturk, while he is not my favorite person, and I'm not going to get into that now, that will come up, come up later on, Kamal Ataturk, despite uh, the disagreements I have with him, he was a very good commander, a military commander by all by all perspectives. He was definitely he knew how to fight, and so when his troops ran out of of uh, bullets, he basically told them, "I'm not asking you to fight. I'm asking you to die." He had his soldiers fix bayonets, and he sent his soldiers down the hill in wave after wave of suicide attacks against the against the Anzac troops. I wouldn't say suicide. Well, I guess it was suicide attacks because the the Anzacs, the the British forces, they still had guns. However, they were severely outnumbered. And they just and they didn't have the higher ground. Now, the these Ottoman troops, I want to remind you, were both Arab and Turkish troops. They weren't all ethnically Turkish troops. They were a combination of both Arabs and Turks. And they would just descend on the Anzacs in wave after waves using nothing basically but knives on the end of their guns because they run out of bullets. And so this must have been some very brutal hand-to-hand fighting. So I can only imagine as it would go, the the Ottoman troops would, would race down the hill the British would shoot them until they ran out of bullets or they had to reload. By the time they had to reload, the Ottomans were right on top of them and they would just fight them and stab them and gut them basically until they were pretty much wiped out or shot down, shot to death. And then eventually another Ottoman wave would come on right behind that. And this is what Kamal Ataturk used to maintain and hold that higher ground. And it worked. Even though the Ottomans weren't able to push the Allies, these Anzac troops, off that beach at Aribernu, they were able to hold that higher ground. They were able to prevent the British, the Anzac troops, from advancing any further. The other major landing that had some serious conflict was at a place called W Beach. Well, the the British called it W Beach. They had given letters to several landing points. Later on, they would call it Lancashire Land because so many of the troops in this region came from Lancashire in England. So Allied troops, they were, they deboarded from their ships, got into rowboats, open air rowboats, and had to roll their these boats full of British troops from their ships to the Gallipoli shores. These ships had no covering. They had no defenses. They were just wooden ships literally being rowed by men. 
as soon as these rowboats packed with British soldiers were within range, the Ottomans at this portion, this is another portion of um, of the Gallipoli. They had not run out of bullets. They, they uh, Kamal Ataturk's troops had run out of bullets about two miles away. These guys had not run out of bullets. And so as soon as the British troops were in range, the Ottomans just lit them up. They opened up with machine gun fire right into these open air rowboats, just packed with soldiers. British soldiers were killed just sitting down in the rowboats. And they didn't even have to really take aim. The the Ottomans just had to walk their bullets up as they shot the bullets and just just shot they just killed them, just slaughtered them in these in these boats. And of course, as this massacre was going on, a bunch of British troops they jumped off. Many of them did jump out of the rowboat and try to swim to shore. But this part of the of the of the Dardanelles Straits the waters were very deep and these British soldiers, some of them were carrying over 70 pounds of equipment and you can kind of tell what happened as they tried to swim. The equipment just dragged them underwater and hundreds more drowned without even making it to the, making it to the shores. Now, despite these heavy losses, eventually the British forces managed to secure W Beach, which they also call Lancashire, Lancashire, Lancashire Landing, they did. They were able by the next day, after suffering some heavy casualties, they were finally able to gain a foothold on the beach, and this was their opportunity to try to take to uh, move further into the beach and up the hills of the of the Gallipoli Peninsula. These Ottomans who who did who were defending this portion of of uh, W Beach, they were eventually outnumbered because, as we mentioned, the British did land at several other parts of the Gallipoli Peninsula, and eventually these uh, Ottoman troops had to retreat because they were about to be surrounded by the other British troops who did not face as uh, difficult of a landing. And so eventually the Allies did secure the southern tip of the Gallipoli Peninsula. And at this point, they were fairly confident, despite the rough, the rough outing, the, the first rough couple of days, they were confident that they would eventually take the whole peninsula in time. This would allow them to secure the Dardanelles Strait for the Allied Navy and then go on to take on Istanbul. That was the plan, at least, and uh, that is not at all what happened. However, by April 30th, 1915, five days after the initial landing, over 30,000 troops from Allied troops had landed on the peninsula, and they had pretty much taken over the lower half, the lower portion of the peninsula. However, in doing so, the Allies had lost over 20,000 soldiers in the process. These successful landings were celebrated back in London. The heavy casualties, the cost in human blood that it took to get this these uh, this foothold on the Gallipoli Peninsula was not yet known by the general public in Britain and in England. So initially, when they heard about these successful landings uh, after five days, it seemed as if uh, victory was imminent for the Allies. And with uh, these successes, everyone began to hope for a quick end to the war. This got one nation, particularly Italy, began, it got them seriously considering joining the war. 
Up to this point, Italy had remained neutral. They had, after all, signed a defensive pact, a defensive treaty with Austria-Hungary and Germany. However, they decided to remain neutral for a couple of reasons. For one, they were traditional enemies of Austria. They shared a border. The northern part of Italy was very close to lands that Austria-Hungary controlled, and there were lots of disputes between the two. And so the Italians, they said that their pact, this agreement, this defensive pact they had with Austria-Hungary was only for defensive wars. However, in their estimation, they believed that Austria-Hungary was the aggressor in this case, and so they saw no reason to actually join in on the war. However, when they saw these successful landings at Gallipoli, when they heard about these successful landings at Gallipoli Peninsula, the Italians decided that this was a good time for them to join the war, but to do so on the side of the Allies, on the side of the British and the French. They they saw this uh, successful landing at Gallipoli as evidence of eventual of an eventual Allied victory. And the Italians were afraid that if they didn't hop on board now, they would lose out on any land acquisitions that would eventually come along. However, by May 1915, uh, almost a uh, full month after the initial landings, the Allied troops hadn't really uh, made that much headway at Gallipoli. There were still heavy casualties on the British side. The initial euphoria of the success of the Allied landings had waned as the British public learned of the heavy casualties and the cost that was paid to gain that foothold in Gallipoli. And as the weeks ticked by, the promises of a quick victory did not materialize, and so people were looking for someone to blame. The Allies, after all, at Gallipoli, the British and the French, they never really advanced much further beyond that southern tip of Gallipoli. And as the uh, Allied advance bogged down, the Ottomans and the Germans, they were able to improve their defenses. And so Gallipoli turned out to be just another trench warfare stalemate, just like what the British and the French were dealing with in Europe. In the British Navy, the British had the strongest navy in the world at that time. The British Navy wasn't able to do anything because they still weren't able to make any headway into the Dardanelles Strait, and they weren't able to relieve some of the pressure from the um, British troops stuck on the southern tip of the Gallipoli Peninsula. So in London, someone had to take the blame, and that someone turned out to be Winston Churchill. The Winston Churchill, the media portrayed him as a civilian poking poking his nose and trying to interfere into military matters. And so the media, the press, the newspapers, they blamed him for overruling his military advisors and other politicians also accused him of seeking glory and using the Navy as a means of him gaining war and glory. Really, much of the blame also fell on Lord Kitchener, the British Minister of War. However, he was a war hero. He was seen as somebody who knew what he was doing, and so the media kind of ignored his role in this whole quagmire. The main reason that the British were suffering in Gallipoli were that the British, they 
they underestimated the Ottomans. They had set their expectations way too high. They had made it seem as if this was going to be a cakewalk. They'd be, they'd be able to able to walk over the Ottomans real easily and just take Istanbul without hardly breaking a sweat. And so the whole campaign, this whole Dardanelles campaign and Gallipoli campaign, it was poorly planned from the very beginning. Both Kitchener and Churchill are to blame because both of them initially wanted a Navy-only campaign. They were hoping to conquer the Dardanelles Strait using just their Navy. Remember, neither one of them really, especially Kitchener, they really didn't want to take any ground troops away from the Western Front, and they saw it as a as a waste of effort and a waste of life if they had to use their troops to fight Arabs and Turks over in the Middle East. And so when the uh, initial naval advance failed, ground troops were finally added only at the last minute. And the whole campaign by the British simply just fell apart. So as the Dardanelles campaign dragged on, London politics reacted and reacted rather harshly. The government reorganized itself. Uh, the different parties, they, they came to certain agreements in order to try to create a, a, a government that had less obstacles and they could get rid of those people they didn't want in office, particularly Churchill. So the government reorganized and formed a coalition government, and Winston Churchill was forced out as the head of the Navy, which was the full name of that department. It's called the, uh, the Admiralty. So he was forced out as the head of the British Navy. He was reassigned as uh, into a position called Chancellor of the Duchy. This was a meaningless position with no authority. It was simply a title, and of course, this was seen as a demotion by Churchill. This new government that came about, they saw it as their duty to protect the military from civilian meddling, and they saw Churchill as the architect of the British failures thus far. However, this new government is pretty much faced with the same problems as the old government was. The real problem was that Lord Kitchener, in this whole thing regarding World War I, he was way over his head. The new government, once they actually got to work alongside Lord Kitchener, they found that he was a very difficult person to work with. And they realized that he was just as much blame for the British losses uh, at Gallipoli as Churchill was. But it was still difficult to do anything about him because he was seen as a war hero by both the media and by the public. However, by June 1915, Several British politicians, they were considering withdrawing from Gallipoli. They had realized the quagmire was not getting any better. They weren't making any headway. And it was better to use those troops in Europe where they could try to protect their the, uh, the land that was closest to them. Kitchener, the British Minister of War, he was strongly against this decision and because of his, his esteem, because of his popularity, because of his reputation, the British politicians, they were not willing to defy him and force him to do what they said, even though, you know, he was technically their, he was technically their subordinate. However, they weren't able to stop him from doing anything. Yet at the same time, Kitchener was not able to give them any alternatives for victory at Gallipoli. At Gallipoli. He would give them these vague statements and, and vague ideas of when victory at Gallipoli would eventually come. 
In the meantime, the Allies, the British were just losing men in Gallipoli at Gallipoli without making any serious progress. And we're going to discuss one of these instances where the British really just lost a whole lot of soldiers for no doggone reason. Right, so let's skip a few months ahead to August 1915. The stalemate at Gallipoli had continued to drag on for several months. And we're going to discuss what would be the final and last true British offensive at Gallipoli. August 1915, the Ottomans were dug in, the Allies were dug in, but the Allies are mostly dug in, mostly on the beach, in these trenches along the beach of Gallipoli, whereas the Ottomans were dug in on the hills overlooking the beach. And they were also at some positions in um, on the beaches as well, but for the most part, the Ottomans were on the hills, and the British and their Allies were stuck in the trenches on the beaches. And neither side was really to, was really able to make any progress against the other. The, the Ottomans, they were not able to force the British off the coast. They weren't able to wipe out the British defenses along the beach. And the British weren't able to advance up the hills against the Ottomans and go further and get further into Gallipoli. So it was just a stalemate with both sides shelling and shooting and killing each other, but not really making any, any uh, sort of progress. The British decided to try another tactic. They uh, decided to land at a place called Suvala Cove on the western coast of Gallipoli, and they wanted to advance into the hills of Suvala Cove and try to push out some of the Ottomans that were entrenched there. There are two hills that the British wanted to take over. These two hills that the, the British called them, one of them they called a Hill 60, the other, the other one was called Scimitar Hill. And so the British had had uh, organized 14,300 troops to take part in this assault on the western coast of Gallipoli. And so it starts off with British ships shelling the Ottoman defenses. Now, remember, this is on the western coast of Gallipoli, not along the um not along the Dardanelles Strait. The Dardanelles Straits are on the eastern coast of Gallipoli, between um, Gallipoli and and Turkey, modern day Turkey. Whereas this new landing, this new attempt by the British, was on the other side of the peninsula. So there there weren't as many Ottoman mines and defenses that could really fight off. Uh, British ships in, th in this direction. So the British shelled the hills and bombarded the hills, trying to dislodge the Ottoman troops that were there, trying to soften up, for, soften them up a little bit for the British troops. And so the 14,000 British troops landed on the shores and they began to advance up the slopes against the Ottomans. The Ottomans, however, still hidden deep in the, in the slopes. They had a clear line of sight. And as the British troops began to advance up the slopes of the hill, the Ottomans opened up on them and just lit them up. They mowed them down, just shooting and shooting and just hit them with all sorts of shells and and machine gun fire. They use these guns called MG, MG-08s. I'll try to post a picture uh, on the website so you can get a, get a get an idea of how these looked. And they wiped out, they, they were putting a heavy, a heavy hitting on the uh, British. At least 600 uh, British invading soldiers were killed on the very first day. It's 600 people. 
And the Ottomans, they also had artillery. I mean, they didn't just have machine guns. They also had artillery. They were able to use their artillery to bombard the British troops as they came running across the beach, trying to find themselves some uh, some cover and try to make them way, their way up the slopes just to be just to be mowed down by Ottoman machine gun fire. So with the Ottomans shelling the British, the British ships in the Aegean Sea, they shelled the Ottomans right back. And all of, all of this shelling back and forth led to a lot of heat and a lot of smoke and eventually even fire. And as this fire swept through the brush and the, brush and the vegetation on the hills, the British soldiers who were injured in this initial invasion, many of them couldn't move because... Their comrades, of course, were pinned down, so the wounded British soldiers, they couldn't move. They, they just sat there as fire swept over them, and many of them were burned to death, just wounded there on the shores of Gallipoli as this fire came through. With the fire and the smoke and the heat, the, the British were even further impeded because now it, this smoke... It, it obscured their vision, but the smoke didn't really cause a problem for the Ottomans. All the Ottomans had to do is really just shoot down, and they could see beyond the smoke. They were on a hill, of course. They could see beyond the smoke across into the beach as the British were coming through. So the Ottomans still had a clear line of sight, whereas the British were were really in a lot of trouble. They they were choking from the smoke. Some of them were being burnt alive. The heat was unbearable, and the Ottomans were just putting a hurting on them. All in all, over 5,000 British troops were killed trying to, th to take these two hills, Hill 60 and Scimitar Hill. The Ottomans, on the other hand, they lost, left, they lost less than half of that amount simply defending the hill. And as it turned out, just like in the other parts of the Gallipoli Peninsula, both sides wound up digging more trenches and just trading blows with each other. But the Ottomans had the had the upper ground. They were able to hold off the British for the remainder of this campaign. And so the British never, out of 14,000 troops, they lost 5,000 of them. That's almost a third. Almost a third of their troops were killed. I guess it's more than a third, actually. More than a third of their troops in this invasion were killed, and they never even gained really an inch. And so that just was one example of the difficulties that the British had in trying to conquer, trying to invade the Gallipoli Peninsula. By the end of the year, uh, 1915, the British had realized that Gallipoli was futile. There was no way they're going to conquer this peninsula. And as of as as of now, Lord Kitchener had blocked all attempts by the British politicians to withdraw from this campaign. However, while Kitchener was blocking the British efforts at withdrawing from this quagmire, he was also not willing to send any reinforcements or transfer any troops from the Western Front over to Gallipoli. And to a certain extent, he had a point there because by this time, there were already 250,000 Allied troops, a quarter of a million troops stuck at Gallipoli. And by the way, many of these troops were actually Muslim Senegalese troops fighting for the French. So let's just know that. Continuing on, so 
Kitchener, his uh, luster had finally begun to fade. The politicians were tired of him by by now. They saw that he was not all he was cracked up to being. However, the uh, media still treated him like a hero. The British politicians, they wanted to get rid of him. The media treated him like a hero. They blamed the stalemate at uh, Gallipoli. They blamed it on British politicians still interfering. And the public, of course, they accepted whatever the media said. Finally, the British Prime Minister, he wanted to uh, he wanted to force Kitchener's hand, and so he decided to send Kitchener to Gallipoli on a fact-finding mission. What the Prime Minister really hoped for was that Kitchener would arrive in Gallipoli, get uh, and get stuck there. He was hoping that Kitchener would get there, would would get to Gallipoli, fall back in love with the Middle East, and decide, you know, I'll just take things matters over for myself and just stay there and let the the uh, the uh, politicians handle things in London. Well, that's not exactly what happened. When Kitchener, when Kitchener did arrive at Gallipoli, he saw how bad things were, and he ultimately came to the conclusion that, yes, it was really time to withdraw. So he returned to London against the politicians' wishes. He did return to London, but he agreed with them. And with with his approval, the British finally began the evacuation of Gallipoli. And so by the beginning of 1916, the Allied retreat of from Gallipoli was fully underway, and this retreat was actually considered a very successful retreat, if there ever is one, because there were very few British casualties as they abandoned the peninsula. And that pretty much ends the Gallipoli campaign. So just a few details about some of the outcomes, some of the ramifications of the Gallipoli Peninsula. First of all, Casualties were heavy on both sides. Got to give kudos to the Ottomans for protecting their land. They lost a lot of soldiers. However, they did not lose quite as much as the Allies did. The Allies' losses were over 300,000 people. Uh, can you, that's, like a, <clears throat> that's like a large city. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's mind-boggling. So many people were, were lost in this battle. So the British, they lost over 160,000 just in combat. The French, they lost almost 30,000 people in combat. Both sides lost tens of thousands of people to sickness. The Ottomans, on the other hand, they lost about 150,000 in combat, and they also lost about 20,000 people from sickness. So just so you understand how sickness happened there, generally, you, you get sickness and disease is rampant no matter where you have a large concentration of people. This happens on uh, on Hajj. I got sick when I made Hajj, uh, pilgrimage to Mecca, and most people do. Most Muslims report getting some kind of sickness when they make Hajj. Well, same thing is happening here, only add on top of this, you have thousands of men dying. They're, as they die, of course, their blood and their, their body fluids, they go, every, they, they go everywhere, basically. Men are sharing bathrooms and stuff. There's no... Adequate, adequate way to dispose of these thousands of dead bodies, and so they have to bury them right there on the, you know, in the sands of the, sh- in the sands of the beaches, right there on the shores of Gallipoli. 
these burials burials are not always that great. The uh, the fluids and the dead bodies they attract flies. The flies go from a dead body into a into a person's sandwich or into their food, and there you go. Disease is being spread, and many more ways that the, that disease can spread in these situations. So, both sides lost tens of thousands of people to sickness alone. The British, they they did not gain any strategic advantage from this campaign. The most that they actually did gain from the uh, Dardanelles, from this Gallipoli campaign, the most they, they actually gained was the, the idea that they were now fully committed to the Middle East. Before, there was a bit of a wavering whether how, about how much they, the British were going to commit to dismantling or taking over the Middle East. They were mostly concerned about protecting Europe. But now, after losing almost, um, oh, almost uh, well, the Allies lost over a quarter of a million people at Gallipoli, now the British were committed to taking over the Middle East. However, however for now, they had to withdraw. They had to take, get out of the Middle East for the time being and... Even though the British had to withdraw, they had to abandon, they had to retreat, they weren't going to forget about this humiliation. This loss at Gallipoli forced some of the British military leaders to investigate, further investigate the possibilities of creating allies with some of the Arab leaders in the region. We're going to get to that in a future episode. Finally, the losses at Gallipoli it compelled the British to stay involved in the Middle East for many years to come. Churchill disappeared from the scene. He resigned from his post as Chancellor of the Duchy, and he joined the military in France as a British officer. Right, just a quick tangent to discuss Winston Churchill. Now, like I say, he he's not really my favorite person. Uh, he had he has made uh, many several racist comments about different groups of people, Muslims, Arabs, Indians. And he had he was also at least partially responsible for a famine that killed thousands of, of Bengalis. So Churchill was not really my favorite person. And I just bring this up to say because many there's um currently a a uh, I won't say a movement, but people are looking at some of the statements of Mahatma Gandhi when he was a young lawyer in South Africa. He had said several racist things, and that's being held held against him now. And there's lots of turmoil about whether he was truly a hero that the world can actually embrace. And Mahatma Gandhi, he's you know he has his problems as well. He's not a perfect person, but. To me, Churchill was probably worst. I mean, I don't know. There's Mahatma Gandhi, at least he was not anti-Muslim. Some of Churchill's statements show him to be anti-Muslim. Now, you got to give Churchill his, um, his props because, let's face it, he was fighting against the Nazis who were even more racist than he was. <laughs> they outdid Churchill's racism. So we can't overlook the contributions he made but I'm not willing to call him to embrace him as a hero. He was just as racist as Woodrow Wilson was in the United States. So it's kind of hard to really, I don't, it's kind of hard to judge people from way back then by today's standards. And I don't want to do that too much, but also want you to understand that these are some complicated individuals and one man's hero is another man's villain. 
but we'll leave that alone. For now, Churchill is out of the story for the time being. All right, going back to the uh, the story, Kitchener, Lord Kitchener, after the uh, he approves and authorizes the British withdrawal from Gallipoli, he decides to take on less of a role. He had always known that the politicians in London, they wanted to get rid of him, but and actually he was willing to resign. Kitchener did not mind stepping down from his post, but there was no one really able to take his place. There was no one available to replace him if he did step down. And so he had to reluctantly stay on in a position he didn't really want. And the politicians had to reluctantly keep him, but they could not openly criticize him because they had no one to take his place. But Kitchener was able to do certain things to make things better. He, though he could not resign, he did, he was, he did offer to take on less responsibilities. He would retain his title as war minister, but he recruited an officer named uh, Field Marshal William Robertson. He recruited this guy and brought him in to take to take over many of the war duties. William Robertson, he had experience on the Western Front. And he had a better understanding of what the soldiers who were actually fighting needed. And so this allowed uh, Kitchener to take a less open and less public profile and less of a direct hand in the war strategy. However, Kitchener was still very much involved. He still kept his focus on the shaping of the future of the Middle East. Remember, he thought that he understood the Middle East and he understood Islam and he understood Muslims much better than he actually did. So he was intent on shaping the Middle East in the way that he saw fit. In doing so, he wound up meeting with his protege, whom we discussed a few episodes ago, Sir Mark Sykes. Mark Sykes had recently been on a fact-finding mission in the Middle East, and he had come back to London with some very important information about a potential British ally in the Middle East. As we mentioned in an earlier episode, Mark Sykes was part of a committee that was uh, put together to determine what the British were going to do with the Middle East after the Ottomans were defeated. And so Mark Sykes had some information about this potential ally, and he wanted to share this with Lord Kitchener, and the two would use this in the future of the Middle East. In our next episode, we will return to Mark Sykes. We're going to see what information he had for Lord Kitchener. We're going to see what connections he made with various Arab leaders in the Middle East, and we will see what recommendations he had for the British. So, but that will be next week, inshallah. On another note, if you are interested in learning more about other parts of Islamic history from much further past, much further in the past than World War One, consider becoming a Patreon subscriber, a Patreon supporter. We have several episodes about um, many stories from the Quran. We have the archived stories from season one. We also have the full Sita, about 45 episodes. Uh, that's The Sita is the uh, life of Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. We are currently going over the uh, rebellion of Ibn Zubair against the Umayyads. As you know, we, we covered the righteous caliphs in season two. Then we covered from the 
rise of Caliph Muawiyah as the fifth caliph of the Islamic world up until the uh, death of Hussein ibn Ali at the massacre at Karbala. And now we are going into Ibn Zubair's struggles against the Umayyads. And so we are currently, I think, on episode six, I believe. And I've got a short clip here for you coming right up. This is uh, discussing how Ibn Zubair went about some of her some of the steps he took in rebuilding the Kaaba after the Kaaba was damaged by the sea, by the Umayyads besieged Mecca and set up catapults in the mountains surrounding Mecca and launched missiles into the Kaaba and the Kaaba was damaged in this siege. And so this clip that's coming up discusses uh, Ibn Zubair's efforts to rebuild the Kaaba. So I hope you enjoy that. If you are interested in getting the full series and all the other stuff I mentioned, go to patreon.com slash Islamic history and sign up and you can get some regular episodes there, inshallah. But until then, enjoy the clip and until next time, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And so before we wrap up, let's uh, briefly discuss the Kaaba. As we mentioned, uh, going back to the Hejaz, the Kaaba had been severely damaged during the Umayyad siege of Mecca. It had caught on fire. Some of the missiles from the catapults in the mountains surrounding Mecca had damaged its walls. And now the walls were beginning to bend and buckle. So Ibn Zubair, he ordered for the he ordered the entire building to be demolished. Yes, Ibn Zubair had the entire Kaaba, all the walls of Kaaba torn down, but he left the foundation of the Kaaba intact. I'm not sure where I mentioned it, but I mentioned it as either in the the Sira episode or somewhere in the um, during the regular Islamic history podcast. Somewhere I mentioned that the Kaaba that we have today has been built and rebuilt several times over. I believe what we have right now was last put in place during the 16 or 1700s. So it's been, it's been there for a while, what we have right now, but it's not the original stones and bricks from the Prophet's time. However, the foundation of the Kaaba, that is still the same even from the Prophet's time. And Tariq Khatabri confirmed that even though Ibn Zubair destroyed the Kaaba, it was it was damaged anyway, so he had to rebuild it. When he destroyed it and rebuilt it, he uh, left the foundation intact and he did not destroy that. So in the rebuilding process, uh, Ibn Zubair had the contents of the Kaaba. There are several treasures, uh, several what they considered important things, relics and everything that had been kept in the Kaaba. These are mostly perfumes and clothing from the Prophet and some of the hiring companions that were kept in, within the Kaaba, things that were very important. He had these taken out of the Kaaba and they were kept with the family that was responsible for maintaining the Kaaba. He had them secure its treasures, the, the treasures of the Kaaba while it was being rebuilt. The black stone itself was placed on top of a pedestal on a, with a, on, on top of a silk cloth. It, it remained in the same position so the people would be able to still know where the different corners of the Kaaba was while they were making their um, circumambulation, their tawaf. So just in 
the way I picture it, reading Tony Khatabdi's description, the way I picture it is that you have the foundation of the Kaaba there, and you have this construction going on, but you still have the black stone on a pedestal, clearly visible. People are still coming for Umrah, coming to the to the Kaaba for various different things. It's the Kaaba, it's the center of Islam. People are still coming there all the time, and they're still making their tawaf around the Kaaba. Only this time you have a construction site, but the but the black stone is still there. It's still maintained where people can see it. So people know where the Yemeni corner is and where the Iraqi corner is and all these different parts of the Kaaba that we know of today. They still know where all of these things are, and so they're able to make that tawaf as the while the construction is going on. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit islamichistorypodcast.com slash Middle East to find other episodes in this series. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a five-star rating and review and share it with your friends and family. You can also support the Islamic History Podcast and get access to exclusive content by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Islamic History. We have exclusive episodes covering the life of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, the life of Ibn Zubair, the Crusades, and so much more. Special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Sarosh for his research and support of the show, and thanks to all our Patreon subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu.